Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Kenneth L. Grasso, professor of political science at Texas State University, giving a talk entitled, From Articles of Peace to CultureCon, Catholicism, the HHS Mandate, and the Problem of Religious Pluralism in America. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. What I want to talk about, well, well, let me say this. The HHS mandate and the controversy surrounding it can be approached from a variety of different angles. It can, looked at, can be looked at through a variety of different lenses. What I want to try to do today is to situate it in the context of America's historic engagement with what might be called the problem of religious pluralism. It is, of course, a commonplace that one of America's most notable historical accomplishments has been the forging of a new and largely successful solution to this age-old problem. Although our political history has hardly been devoid of religious and cultural conflict, it's widely agreed that the American experience demonstrates that religious pluralism need not in itself be politically debilitating, that religious pluralism as such need not threaten the unity and vitality of the body politic. Despite our religious pluralism, as John Courtney Murray famously noted, um, there have never been two Americas in the sense in which there have been two Frances. Politically speaking, said Murray, America has always been one. Uh, unlike France, in other words, America has had no history of bristling division into militantly secularist and devoutly Christian blocs contesting the fundamental terms of the social compact. Well, as we all know, the HHS mandate and, and the resulting controversy must be seen as the latest front in a protracted culture war raging within the American body politic. Um, at issue in this culture war is the very identity, the very defining commitments of the American body politic. At issue in this culture war is what understanding of human nature, what understanding of the human good, and what understanding of the proper structure of human social relations is going to inform human social life, or American social life, I should say. The depth and intractability of this culture war suggests to me, at least, that, that we need to revisit our traditional solution to the problem of religious pluralism, that perhaps that solution is not working as well as it once did. The, the, the mandate and the ensuing um, controversy, I'll argue, not only inaugurates a new phase in this ongoing culture war, but marks the crossing of a political Rubicon. It commences a new phase in America's engagement with the problem of religious pluralism, in which our traditional articles of peace, our traditional solution to this problem, and the understandings undergirding them are no longer operative. This state of affairs, I will suggest, has disconcerting implications for the future of both the American body politic and for the relationship of Catholics to that body politic. Uh, to begin with, why is religious pluralism a problem? If you think about it just for a moment, the reasons why aren't mysterious. Uh, on the one hand, as James Madison noted in Federalist 10, like countless other differences among human beings, race, class, etc., religious divisions can and often do become a source of political division and social conflict. Uh, on the other hand, divergent understandings of the human person and the human good uh, 
embodied in different religious traditions can be a powerful barrier to political unity. How can groups holding incompatible understandings of the nature and destiny of man agree on the political and moral principles that are going to superintend public life? Confronted with the problem of religious pluralism, one possible response, historically the most common response, is what might be called culture comp. While my use of this term is intended to evoke memories of the struggle triggered by Bismarck's famous attack on the Catholic Church, I use the term in a broader sense, namely to refer to the use of law and public policy to eliminate the problems caused by religious pluralism by eliminating religious pluralism itself. The use of law and public policy to reduce plurality to uniformity, to transform a pluralistic public square into a monistic one. Implicit in this strategy is the conviction that religious pluralism constitutes an insoluble obstacle to political unity and thus has to be eliminated. While America has from time to time flirted with the idea of culture conf, we ultimately have pursued a different course. Um, not only did the far re reaching pluralism that was the native, native condition of our country make policies designed to create religious uniformity simply impractical, but our commitment to limited government denied the state the type of power it would need for such an under, undertaking. Culture conf required a far more powerful state than Americans were willing to tolerate. So Americans had to live with religious pluralism and had to try to find a way to make it work, had to find a way to successfully negotiate it. Now to understand the American solution to the problem, Murray tells us, I'm going to begin with Murray's analysis, um, it's first necessary to grasp the problem itself. The problem of religious pluralism revolves around two poles, civic unity and religious uni uniformity. Let's, or, and religious integrity, rather. Let's take them one at a time. To begin with, tackling this problem involves finding a way to establish civic unity, to establish a stable and unified body politic in the face of what may be very serious religious disagreements. Securing this unity will necessarily involve forging a consensus about the understanding of human nature and the human good and the goals of government. In a religiously pluralistic society, the public consensus cannot encompass the full range of theological truths that govern the total life and destiny of man. A religiously pluralistic society has to struggle to achieve a more modest, a more limited consensus, a consensus, a consensus operative on the level of political life, with regard to the rational truths and moral precepts that govern the structure of the constitutional state, specify the substance of the common wheel, and determine the ends of public policy. Even forging such a limited consensus in the face of serious religious disagreements is a difficult matter. At the same time, the fact of religious pluralism has profound implications for the content of this consensus and for the character of the political unity it seeks to establish. On the one hand, the affirmations comprising the public consensus 
have to be broadly acceptable. They have to be compatible with the convictions of the overwhelming majority of religious believers who compose the body politic. On the other hand, the unity this consensus seeks to bring into being, the unity this consensus seeks to establish, must be a, limited, a unity of a limited order that doesn't hinder the various religious communities in the maintenance of their own distinctive religious identities, that doesn't hinder them in living out their own religious commitments, in Murray's terms, that protect, respects their religious integrity. There is, as Murray dryly notes, no small problem here. Um, what, what then was America's solution to this problem? Well, despite its religious pluralism, America was able to forge a public consensus embodying a whole series of anthropological, political, moral, metaphysical, and theological principles. This consensus made possible an not just a procedural agreement on the structure of the state, but a general agreement on the moral and political principles that, that inform the structure of the state and which specify the contents of the public good. An integral part of this public consensus, Murray tells us, was the historically revolutionary distinction between the spiritual and temporal orders that constituted Christianity's cardinal contribution to the Western political tradition. The distinction between state and church as independent institutions with different roles in the overall economy of human social life made it possible for America to limit the scope of both the political order and the public consensus underlying it. Their shared acceptance of the Christian distinction between church and state, in other words, made it possible for Americans to embrace the idea of restricting the scope of government to civil matters alone. The unity asserted in the American motto, E Pluribus Unum, was a liberty of a the unity asserted in this motto was a unity of a limited order. America wasn't intended to be a church, but a civil community whose unity was purely political and whose ends extended only to the pursuit of certain enumerated secular um, purposes. To say, by the way, they're secular doesn't mean they were not moral. Um, Insofar as America was not a church, its civic unity did not presuppose an agreement about the totality of theological truths governing public life. Um, th this aspect of the American solution found expression in the legal provisions uh, of the First Amendment. Properly understood, Murray says, these provisions represented a self-denying ordinance through which the American people voluntarily chose to limit the powers of their government. Um, they functioned as articles of peace by removing divisive religious questions from public life. Confronted with the religious pluralism that was America's native condition um, and embracing the ideal of sharply limited government, the American people chose to limit the powers of the state in religious matters, to deny it the ability to use law and public policy to reduce the religious pluralism of American society to uniformity. Indeed, rather than have government represent 
One of the competing visions of transcendental truth current in American society, government was limited to representing the commonly shared moral values of the community and the supreme religious truth expressed in the motto on American coins, in God we trust. This, by the way, didn't imply any hostility towards religion. At the heart of the American political creed, as it were, is an affirmation of the sovereignty of God. Um, and historically, the First Amendment, until fairly recently, has been interpreted in a way um, that, that looked with favor on religious life rather than attempting to privatize it. But the effect of these limitations on the power of government was to create a public order in which the institutions of civil society, rather than the state, became the center of social gravity, in which religious groups were afforded the social space they needed to live out their distinctive um, commitments. Precisely for this reason, America's regime of limited government made possible the creation of a public order that could command the allegiance of the diverse faith communities composing our religiously divided society. Now, of course, as anyone familiar with American history knows, this solution was not always faithfully adhered to. In this context, one can't but think of the efforts of Protestant groups to use public education as a vehicle for inculcating their distinctive beliefs and values, and their efforts to exclude in various ways non-Protestants from full participation in public life. Nevertheless, by and large, the path of culture comp was rejected. This, by and large, this solution enabled Americans to successfully reconcile the demands of civic unity and religious integrity. This, by the way, was certainly the view of the overwhelming majority of American um, Catholics um, who, were, who embraced this solution. Uh, on the one hand, American Catholics believed that the essential contents of the consensus underlying the American polity consisted of principles that approved themselves to the Catholic intelligence and, conf and, and conscience. Uh, on the other hand, they were convinced that the resulted public order secured to the, to the church the full independence from interference by political authority necessary to her fulfillment of her divine mission and to individual Catholics the freedom to profess and practice their faith. Now, while Murray's kind of classic analysis of this is a useful starting point, um, it does leave in the background certain preconditions on which the solution that he celebrates depended. Um, one thinks in this context of America's American federalism and the way that decisions on church and state and public morality largely rested with the individual states. Um, one thinks in this context of the sharply limited scope of government throughout most of America's history, the limited role that government played prior to the 20th century in the overall um, scheme of American social life. One thinks in this context of the constitutional understandings that gave leg state legislatures relatively free hand to forge public policies in the area, again, of church-state relations and public morality. But perhaps the most important precondition, and the one I want to focus on here, can, is cultural in nature. Is cultural in nature. 
America was this land of religious pluralism. Visitors here were constantly amazed at the plurality of churches that they encountered. But at the same time, America was able to forge this broad consensus on the moral and political principles governing social life. How was this possible? Obviously, there existed some sort of common cultural horizon here that let Americans achieve, that reflected, let Americans achieve this consensus. How could this social common horizon be reconciled with the fact of American religious pluralism? The, the, the answer is to be found in the limited nature of the religious pluralism that traditionally prevailed in America. One thinks in this context of Tocqueville's famous observation that while in early America the religious scene consisted of an innumerable multitude of churches, nevertheless all the churches belonged to the great unity of Christendom. The, the, the fact that early America's religious pluralism was limited to the confines of Christianity helps explain not only why a common cultural horizon was still possible, but the specific content of this horizon. It explains to begin with the broad moral consensus, the material moral homogeneity uh, on which our traditional solution to the problem of religious pluralism traded. It also explains why Americans were unified in embracing this distinction between church and state and the vision of limited government that it made possible. This distinction, after all, is not some sort of universal feature of the human social landscape. It begins historically with Christianity and is found only in cultural milieus that have been substantially influenced by Christianity. So again, it's the fact that we're dealing with a basic, basically intra-Christian pluralism here that enabled this solution to work. While this pluralism did indeed evolve over the course of our history, moving from a pluralism initially limited to the confines of Protestantism during the colonial period to a pluralism including large numbers of Jews and later, large numbers of Catholics rather, and later a significant number of Jews. Nevertheless, until quite recently, the fact was that all the religions that had adherents numerous enough to matter in America shared a common Judeo-Christian tradition, holding the Ten Commandments in common in most respects, particularly regarding matters of public concern, the diverse religions of America taught substantially the same moral code, professed substantially the same moral code. The point is, while, the religious, pluralism, while religious pluralism was certainly a source of disagreement and cultural conflict, until fairly recently, this disagreement and conflict was always more theological than moral and unfolded within the horizon of a common biblical culture. This common biblical culture provided a common ground and a common language um, that made possible a broad overlapping consensus on the nature of man and the goods that should inform human social life. The point is the Articles of Peace Murray celebrates derive at least in part from shared articles of faith. American political culture, however, was shaped not only by the religious heritage of Western civilization, but by its philosophic tradition as well. And this common moral horizon was also made possible by our shared commitment to the Western natural law tradition. 
As one influential revolutionary era sermon put it, a special revelation from heaven was not needed to teach us the basic principles of moral and political order because the plain dictates of reason and common sense with which the, with which the common parent of man has informed the human bosom will suffice. Moreover, the version of the natural law tradition that influenced America saw the moral truths embodied in the natural law tradition as largely congruent with the traditional, with, with traditional Judeo-Christian morality. What one thinks here in terms of Jefferson, now Jefferson's certainly no orthodox Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but one thinks of Jefferson's affirmation that the system of morality taught by Jesus was the most perfect and sublime ever, ever taught. Indeed, as Francis Canavan remarks, while the early American proponents of deism rejected revelation as superstition and championed a morality based on reason alone, the moral code that they upheld did not differ dramatically from biblical morality on matters of common concern and was in fact a secularized version of traditional Christian morality. The the past century, the past hundred years, have witnessed the gradual erosion of these preconditions. Um, at the political level, we've seen a massive expansion in the size and scope of government, and a transformation of our political system so profound that observers now speak of a new American constitutional order. The defining features of this new constitutional order include the nationalization, constitutionalization, and let's see if I can pronounce it, judicialization of public policy in the areas of church-state relations and public morality. But again, what I want to focus on is less the kind of political change than the cultural change. And the cultural change has been very far-reaching. Simply look at the American religious landscape. Um, over the past, say, 50, 70 years, the number of adherents of non-Western religions like Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., have increased significantly. Even more importantly for our present purposes, we've seen, we've seen an explosion in the numbers of people who are, whose worldview is basically secular in nature. The sociologists who study these things describe as secularists. What one thinks in this context of the recent Pew study that shows that 20% of Americans are now nuns. That's not N-U-N-S, it's N-O-N-E-S, just to be clear. 20% uh, of Americans profess no particular religion or religious affiliation. That's a very, those are some very dramatic developments. At the same time, there are other things going on. Here I'm relying on James Davison Hunter, his book Culture Wars, which is a very thoughtful analysis of all this. Um, Hunter talks about the polarization of Catholicism, Judaism, and the various Protestant denominations into Orthodox and progressive camps. What divides these camps, Hunter argues, are two distinct conceptions of moral authority, two distinct conceptions of the basis which people should use to determine whether something is good or bad, right or wrong, acceptable or unacceptable. The, the folks on the orthodox side 
are committed to the view that moral truth is not something created by human beings, but something discovered by human beings. The orthodox side affirms the existence of an objective, unchanging, and universally binding set of moral norms emanating from a transcendent source, emanating from a transcendent authority. Now, what we've just called orthodoxy, what Hunter calls orthodoxy, um, you know, finds expression in the religious traditions of the West, in Catholicism, Protestantism, and Judaism, as they've traditionally been understood, as well as in the mainstream of the Western natural law tradition. The second view, progressivism, is of more recent origin. It finds its origin not just in the Enlightenment, per se, but even more recently in the Radical Enlightenment. Um, in sharp contrast to the proponents of orthodoxy, the progressivists deny the existence of any external and transcendent source of moral authority. On the contrary, they, ins they insist that moral truth is perpetually unfolding, that moral truth is a human construction and is therefore both conditional and relative, and that moral truth should reflect the human good as their highest end. C culturally, this view of moral truth as something humanly created rather than discovered is linked with the celebration of individual autonomy or the right of each individual to choose his or her own values and way of life. In this view, the liberated individual becomes the final arbiter of moral judgment. You know, in the famous Supreme Court, you know, decision that we've all heard, you know, in the abortion cases, you know, the Casey case, we've all heard the famous mystery passage. At the heart of liberty is the right of each person to define their own approach to the mystery of, of human existence. The, the result of these two contrasting views of moral authority it is the culture war that racks the American polity today, a culture war that finds its most vivid expression in the ongoing conflicts over things like abortion, same-sex marriage, and, and religion's role in public life. And again, really this culture war pits orthodoxy versus progressivism, which is to say it pits the representatives of the of biblical religion and Western natural, the Western natural law tradition against the champions of the radical enlightenment. Okay? This conflict differs from most of America's past cultural conflicts by virtue both of its depth and intractable character. Previous American cultural conflicts unfolded in the context of a common biblical culture and thus in the context of a shared understanding of the nature of moral truth and a broad substantive agreement on matters of right and wrong. And these past conflicts really confirm, concerned which version of biblical theism would shape America's self-understanding. In contrast, today's culture war takes place at a much more fundamental level. It can, at issue in it is nothing less than which of two fundamentally different worldviews, two fundamentally different understandings of being and purpose, two fundamentally different understandings of the moral principles that should govern human life will inform American culture, will inform American culture. And if this conflict has an interminable character, th this isn't merely because of the intensity of its partisans, or the fact that both sides command the support of sizable segments of the population. 
Rather, it is because of the radically different moral, intellectual, and spiritual universes inhabited by the, by the combatants. These, the fact that they exist in different moral and spiritual universes really makes it very hard for them to arrive at a common language in which to articulate their differences and to find a common moral ground that would allow them to resolve them. Under such conditions, dialogue, much less resolution through compromise, becomes a virtual impossibility. It becomes a virtual impossibility. Now, America's historic ability to reconcile the demands of civic unity with those of religious integrity has depended on this fortuitous combination of circumstances. The solution was not some sort of universally applicable solution that will work in all times and in all places under all conditions. It was a solution that worked in America because of the political and cultural uh, conditions that prevailed in America. In this, as in so many other respects, our long holiday from history appears to be ending. In present circumstances, it's difficult to see how we can succeed in simultaneously securing civic unity and safeguarding religious integrity. Indeed, contemporary realities might, make it very, might well make it impossible to successfully do either. How in the face of this new, more radical type of pluralism, for instance, can we forge the type of overlapping consensus about the moral and political principles uh, on which the unity of the body politic depends? How can we respect religious integrity under conditions in which the distinction between church and state and the limits on government's role in the overall economy of human social life towards which this distinction points is disappearing from our increasingly post-Christian cultural horizon? How can we simultaneously secure civic unity and safeguard religious integrity when the institutionalization of what one group of Americans sees as a fundamental human right requires what other Americans view as an intolerable violation of their right to the free exercise of religion? How can we arrive at a consensus about the proper scope of religious liberty while disagreeing fundamentally about the nature of man and the human good the nature and epistemological status of both religious truth and the goals of political life. If today's culture war is symptomatic of the breakdown of our traditional solution to the problem of religious pluralism, the HHS mandate clearly marks a dramatic, a very dramatic escalation of this conflict. It makes painfully clear that the progressivists are playing for keeps and that they will not allow scruples about burdening the consciences of religious believers to interfere with their plan to refashion the American public square along secularist lines. The gloves, as it were, having come off, we've arrived in a new phase of this culture, or a new phase, again, that I've been calling culture conf, in which the progressivists attempt to actively employ state power to um, to impose their ethos on the rest of us, to transform our pluralistic public square um, into a monistic one. Now, th this development really isn't all that surprising. Um, and in some sense, it was probably inevitable, given, again, the breakdowns of the, the, the preconditions which had kind of enabled everyone to play nice with one another for, for so long. 
But if in some sense inevitable, if in some sense predictable, this culture conf nevertheless marks a dramatic break with the American political tradition, a dramatic break with America's historic commitment to a generous understanding of religious freedom in favor of a narrower understanding that essentially reduces this freedom merely to, a to freedom of worship, a dramatic break with our historic commitment to, to government respect for the pluralism of America's civil society in favor of the use of state power to reduce this pluralism to uniformity. A dramatic break with our historic commitment to the freedom of the church from political control in favor of its subordination to the state. And a dramatic break with our historic commitment to the autonomy of civil society in favor of the reduction of civil society to the extension of an omnicompetent state. Now at this point, there's no telling whether the mandate survives the, very, the various legal hurdles and political challenges that it faces. If it does, however, its consequences would be pretty clear. In, in the short run, it, would drama it dramatically exacerbates our divisions, does it not? It produces a collision between church and state, and between state power and religious conscience, probably unprecedented in American history. And as Professor George alluded to in his remarks, it raises the specter of civil disobedience. If it's in the long run, its effects would be even more dramatic. On the one hand, it would bring about a revolutionary remaking of our public life along European lines. Um, on the other hand, it would result in the alienation of millions of religious believers from the American polity and the reduction of traditionally-minded believers and in institutions to a cultural and legal status that R.R. Reno has aptly described as dimitude of a sort. Even if the mandate is eventually struck down by the courts or revoked by some future administration or repealed by some future con Congress, by intensifying our polarization and further straining the bonds of civic amity, the, the mere attempt to impose the mandate would have inflicted severe damage on the American body politic. By destroying the confidence that believers in America have traditionally had that their freedom to live in accordance with the dictates of their consciences, their freedom to fulfill obligations that they understand to be, in Madison's terminology, precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society, did not depend on the outcome of the next election or the ne next Supreme Court term. The effort to impose the mandate will have intensified our divisions and traumatically raised the stakes of our politics. By its palpable disregard for the demands of religious conscience and readiness to use large-scale state coercion to remake America's civil society along secularist lines, the effort to impose the mandate will have further eroded the mutual trust and sense of communal solidarity, the social capital in the jargon of contemporary social science on which the body politics, excuse me, <coughs> depends for its vitality. Even if it doesn't prevail, in short, the, male, the, the mandate will have um, dealt Ameri the American pol polity a real body blow and made our politics a whole lot nastier and our polity even more dispirited, divided and dysfunctional. So th this mandate really does mark a watershed in, in American political history. 
Um, it makes plain that our traditional understanding of both the scope of religious liberty and the relationship of government to civil society can no longer be taken for granted. Indeed, it commences a new phase in America's engagement with religious pluralism, in which the old rules no longer apply, the old certainties no longer hold, and our traditional articles of peace are no longer operative. What the mandate signifies, in other words, is that the collapse of the, our traditional solution to the problem of religious pluralism has transformed American politics into civil war carried on by other means. Now, now by way of conclusion, I just wanted to reflect for a minute on the, the, where this leaves American Catholics, or at least where it leaves that not inconsiderable portion of the American Catholic community who remain loyal to the faith of the church and, and committed to living um, that faith. Um, while we um, must try with every means at our disposal to turn back the culture conf launched by the Obama administration, we also have to realize this mandate is just the first battle in what is almost certain to be a protracted conflict. Even if we win on the mandate, the, it ain't over yet. That was merely one battle. It, it is going to be a protracted conflict because what's going, today's culture conf is not simply a product of the mendacity of the Obama administration. It is that, but it's more than that. It's rooted in the dynamics of our new pluralism. There's no simply going back and say, let's all walk back to the old solution. Because the conditions on which the old solution depended, the foundations on which it rested, the pillars that supported it, are no longer there. Um, and we, we need to seriously, so we're going to be in this phase of culture comp for at least a while. Moreover, we have to reckon with the possibility that we may fail with the real possibility that a new American regime is taking place, a new regime animated by a vision of man and society incompatible with Catholicism and incompatible and inconsistent with the freedom of Catholics and Catholic institutions to live in accordance with the demands of the faith. We're moving really into sort of uncharted waters here. Now, while one may debate the wisdom of American Catholicism's longstanding embrace of what Murray called the American Doctrine and Project. It, what is today beyond question is that the new realities we face require a fundamental rethinking of American, Catholicism, American Catholicism's cultural orientation. To paraphrase Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Culture, that's my favorite line in the whole thing. Uh, Culturally speaking, America is very, a very different place than it was in 1776, 1900, or even 1960. The America to which Catholics offered their full and free, unreserved, and unembarrassed allegiance no longer exists. The principles which originally inspired the American experiment in self-government, principles that allowed Catholics to embrace this experiment, have been repudiated by large segments of the population and the understandings that assured Catholics the freedom to profess and practice their faith in its full integrity are no longer operative. In this new cultural world, Catholics are going to need um, to distance themselves from American culture, a new willingness to stand apart 
from the mainstream of American culture. We spent a long time fighting to be allowed into that mainstream. Now we need um, to step back. And the forging of this new cultural orientation won't be easy. Uh, on, on the one hand, we have a deep and long-standing psychological investment in being good Americans. On the other hand, the new realities we confront will strongly tempt some American Catholics to reject America and all things associated with it and to seek to wholly withdraw from contemporary American culture into some kind of psychological and cultural enclave. E even leaving aside its practicality, embracing what I like to call the Amish option, would involve a betrayal of the responsibility of American Catholics to energetically engage and energetically evangelize the world around them. At the same time, the kind of cultural Manichaeanism at work here it is simplistic. Uh, among other things, it, would, it involves a failure to make a whole series of important distinctions about different meanings of democracy and different meanings uh, of religious freedom and really a grotesquely one-sided um, account of the nature of the American ex um, experiment. So what do we need here? What we need, what our new situation demands, is a truly balanced understanding of the relationship between Catholicism, as it were, and Americanism. An understanding that steers a middle course but between an uncritical embrace of America and what it represents and a wholesale rejection of all things American. Um, forging this new understanding will involve um, the use of the Catholic intellectual tradition in its full and robust richness. Um, it will also involve an intellectually sophisticated and nuanced understanding of the American exper experience. And successful, successfully living it out will involve having the wisdom and courage necessary to navigate the difficult tension involved in our status as alien citizens, as men and women who embrace their responsibilities as citizens of a particular earthly community while recognizing that their true homeland lies elsewhere. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.